Verse one. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Father, this is your word, and we are grateful for it. I pray that this morning you would awaken in us an expectation that as we hear your word read, and as we spend some time talking about your word, would you help us to have an expectation that you are speaking, that you not only spoke to the church in the distant past, but you are speaking to us even now by your spirit. Help us to listen. Open our eyes and our ears, our minds and our hearts to receive what you are saying and to be changed by it. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. As we have seen in this sermon series, Philippians is a letter from Paul to the church, and it's a letter very much about joy. In this letter, Paul celebrates and promotes the deep happiness that comes from belonging to the community and the purpose that is created by and exists for the sake of the gospel. But to say that this letter is a letter about joy is not to say that it is a letter absent of negativity. We've already heard Paul talk in Philippians about suffering, his own suffering, present and potential, the Philippian suffering, present and potential. And he talks about how this great joy is possible in the midst of and even through great pain. But not only does Paul talk about suffering, he also talks about danger. He talks about threat. You know, if you set any goal, if you pursue any goal, winning a game, building a business, getting healthy in the new year, you have to know that you are going to face resistance towards your pursuit of that goal. There will be threats to reaching that goal. There will be opposition, enemies 
to that goal. And so notice Paul in our text. He resets the goal of the letter. Verse 1, rejoice. Live a life of deep celebration. And then immediately he turns, verse 2, and says, look out. Watch out. Beware of a threat to reaching that goal opposition to your joy, an enemy to this pursuit of happiness. And so what I want us to do this morning is to come to this text and let the Apostle Paul lead us in a little bit of opposition research. So we're going to come to this passage and ask two questions. What is the threat to our joy, and how do we respond to that threat? So first of all, what's the threat to our joy? Well, dogs are. Watch out, look out for dogs. Uh, the problem with that is some of you have dogs and you, you love your dogs and, and, and they might be an enemy for some of you, but for many of you, they, those dogs bring happiness. They bring joy into your life. And so we need to notice that Paul says two other things about these enemies, about this opposition. He says that they are also evildoers and they, they are those who mutilate the flesh. What does that mean? Well, the word mutilate is a play on, it is from the same root of the word that he uses in the next verse. In verse 3, when in contrast to these enemies, he says, we are the circumcision. Now, much of the New Testament, and especially the letters of Paul, deal with, address issues and controversies around the practice of circumcision which seems utterly irrelevant to us. Why do we need to talk about this? Why does that matter to us? Well, let's think about it for a moment. God gave the practice of circumcision to Abraham and his descendants in Genesis 17. And he gave that practice to Abraham as a mark of belonging as a mark of those who belong to the special relationship, the covenant that God was making with Abraham and his descendants. So circumcision says it marks out who is in, who belongs to the people of God, who bring about the purposes of God in the world. That's what circumcision says. And so it is significant because circumcision is about who is in and who is out. It is about who qualifies for the designation of belonging to the people and purposes of God. Circumcision is about who belongs, who's qualified, who is able to bear these designations. And Paul's message and the message of the gospel is not that circumcision was bad, but that it is no longer necessary because there is a new circumcision. There is a new mark of belonging. There is something new that says who is in with God, his people, and his purpose. 
And that mark is not the physical ritual given, to God, given by God to Abraham. No, that mark is the person of Jesus given to all of those who believe in him, given to all of those who are united, who are connected to Jesus by faith. Paul says that is what says who belongs. Those who are in are those who are in Christ. That's the qualification for who can bear the designation of being God's people, those who bring about God's purpose in the world. But there were voices in the earliest Christian communities who were saying, that's not enough. Jesus is not enough. You need something else. You need some other ritual, some other observance, some other identification, some other practice to say that you are in, to prove that you qualify for belonging to God and his purposes. And Paul says, those are the enemy. That message is the deepest threat to your joy. It's why he calls them dogs. Because in this culture, dogs were not domestic pets. They were scavengers. And in the Jewish, Jewish system, they were unclean animals. And so they were the embodiment of what was outside and should stay outside. So Paul is saying, those who would say to you that you need something else in order to be inside have shown themselves to be outside of what God is saying and doing. And that is the deepest threat to your joy. Now remember, Paul is in prison, and he will be executed by the Roman Empire. But he doesn't turn and point at Caesar. He doesn't turn and point at the government that imprisoned him and threatened to imprison the Philippians and say, they're the enemy. No, he turns to any voice, any message that says, you need something else. You need something more. And he says, that's the danger. That's the threat. That is the enemy of your joy. And those voices still speak. Those messages still resound around us and within us. Those messages still threaten our deep happiness in the gospel that say to us, you need something else. You need something more. Jesus isn't enough to qualify you. John Calvin famously said that our hearts are idol factories. Well, our hearts are also circumcision factories. We endlessly invent marks, signals, sign, signs that say who's in and who's out, who qualifies and who doesn't. It's why there are empty shelves at Target that used to be full of Stanley Cups. Not the hockey trophy, but the brand of insulated beverage holders. Have you heard about this craze? Driven by TikTok and other social media platforms, these things have become enormously popular. 
Millions and millions of dollars. It is the must-have. People going to extreme measures to acquire this product. Why? It's not just that it's a quality container for your hot and or cold beverages. Right? It's become something more than that. It has become a mark. It's become a signal. It's become a sign that I am in. An article commenting on that trend said, humans by nature turn objects into meaning. And we do that not only with, mo- with objects, but with practices and actions and certain words said in certain orders. And it is not to say that it is wrong or bad to want or own a Stanley Cup. It is to say, notice the deeply human pattern and watch out. Beware. Be aware of the voices in your life that say, you need something more. You need something else. Jesus is not enough to qualify you. You need some other mark that you are in. That is what will steal your joy. That is what will steal your happiness. But then what? Those voices are incredibly subtle and powerful. Now that we have identified the threat, what do we do? Second question, how do we respond to this threat? Well, notice what Paul does. Notice his strategy. He takes on the message of his enemies, and he applies it to his life. He applies it to his experiences, and he says, okay, you want qualifications? I've got them in spades, not only circumcised on the eighth day, but look at all of the other multitude of ways that I have shown, not only that I am in, but I am at the top of the class. I have all the qualifications you could ever want from me. And then it is as if he holds up that gilded resume and he takes a lighter and he sets fire to it and he throws it in the trash can. And he says, worthless, loss. The word in verse 8 of trash is the word that describes animal or human excrement. He says it's all of that amazing recipe, it's all crap in comparison to what I have in Jesus. Now, why can he do that? Why is there such a drastic contrast between his past resume and his present relationship with Jesus? Well, it's because it is a contrast in confidence. He uses that word confidence and other related words like boasting throughout this text. And the basic idea is this, for us as human beings to get out of bed in the morning, we need to have a base level confidence, a base level assurance that we matter, that what we do or say matters, that we belong to something or someone that matters. And Paul says you can get that confidence, you can get that assurance, he's showing us you can get that from one of two sources. The first is what he calls confidence in the flesh. Now, flesh here means human ability. 
It means what we are able to do. And Paul says, I have every reason to claim confidence in the flesh. I have accomplished, I have achieved at a high level. But why does he throw that away? Why does he treat that as worthless and even repulsive? Well, it's because he has found a far superior source for that assurance, a far superior source for that confidence. And the confidence he talks about was anticipated by the practice of circumcision. This is what his enemies did not understand about that practice. See, when God gave the practice to Abraham in Genesis 17, he also reaffirmed the promises of which circumcision was a sign, was a signal. And he says to Abraham, you will be father of a great people who will carry out my purposes in the world. And not only that, but your wife, Sarah, will be a mother of this people. And kings will come from her and from her son. And when God said that, Abraham fell over laughing. Why? Because Sarah didn't have a son. And Sarah was really old. Way, way, way beyond the human ability, the human capacity to have a child. And so Abraham says, oh, you must mean this other son that we with human ability manipulated through our servant. And God says, no, I mean Sarah's son. The son that can come about not with human ability, but only with divine possibility. So do you see that of which circumcision is a sign? It is a relationship. It is an expression, not of what we the people can do. No, circumcision was an expression of trust, of entrusting ourselves to what only God can do. That's why the hope in Deuteronomy and the rest of the Old Testament prophets was not just the faithful practice of physical circumcision, but that there would be a circumcision of the heart, that there would be a people so profoundly transformed that it was a transformation brought about only by God himself. And what circumcision anticipated, Jesus accomplished. And the announcement of the gospel is not only the anticipation of what God can do, it is the announcement of what God has done. That through his son, Through what his son has done, he draws our lives into the story of his righteousness, into the story of his right-making power and action, into the story of him overcoming death with life by taking death into himself. That's why Paul turns for his confidence, not to his resume, but to his standing in Jesus. That's why he says, I want to be found in Christ. I want to know him. That's why I find my worth in his surpassing worth. And to respond to that threat, to respond to those subtle 
powerful voices that say you need something else. We must follow the gaze of Paul and look away from our resume. Look away from what we can do and rest ourselves in what God has done. We must be found in Christ. We must give ourselves to knowing him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. The idea there is what we saw last week with having the mind of Christ. It is not just knowing theological truths about Jesus, but it is our lives joined to his motion of humility and exaltation. Our lives stamped with the shape of cross and resurrection. And we can claim our lives as a part of that story, not because of our intelligence, not because of our resume, not because of our achievements, not because of our morality, but because of what God has done in Jesus. A man was arrested in Rome a few months ago, and he was arrested for carving his name and his girlfriend's name in the 2,000-year-old wall of the Colosseum. And now he claimed, he, he just thought it was an ordinary wall. He claimed he didn't know <laughs> what it was. But of course, there was widespread outrage. How could someone do this? How could someone have the audacity to desecrate such a significant place to put their name on such an important historical monument. Here's what I want to say to you this morning. Jesus has given you a greater audacity. Not to scratch your name on a historical monument but the audacity of living in the truth that he has written your name in the history of God's redemption. That he has placed your life in the arena of God making all things new. And he has done that not because of your resume, not because of your accomplishments, not even because you own a Stanley Cup, No, he has done that. He has placed your life in the arena of God's righteousness because he loved you and gave himself for you. Don't let anyone take that audacity from you. Don't let anyone take that confidence from you. Don't let anyone tell you that you need something else, something more to qualify you. Instead, rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. Let's pray. Father, we do long for this joy to which your servant, the Apostle Paul, calls us. But we also admit that there are so many voices that speak so powerfully in our lives that threaten that joy, that tell us we need something else, that tell us that Jesus is not enough.
So Father, would you help us to let Jesus set fire to our resumes and then retell the story of our significance with his scars? Would you help us to know ourselves found in Christ, joined to the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, belonging to the story of your righteousness. Don't let anyone take that from us. Help us to find our confidence in you and what you have done. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand? Let's respond to what we have heard with faith, trusting and receiving what God has done and how that makes us a part of what he is doing. Let's affirm our faith together using the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now let's sing together of our confidence in Christ.